everyone. I hope everybody had a great weekend. Um, my goodness, the chat's, the chat's a little full tonight. Um, it's kind of weird to be on the air on a Sunday. Uh, but the thing is, is I was so, I kind of missed um, my podcast during November, but I didn't want to take away from anybody's writing time. So um, I didn't do the podcast and um you know i kind of fizzled out and got really frustrated with my project and i didn't want to uh, inflict my boredom on you guys during nano uh so there's that um tonight's show is about external and internal motivations and i will read the question um from the ask me anything page um before we get started and Julie will be my guest this evening she's um agreed to talk about external and internal motivations in her own work um and uh we'll see how that goes and um I think it might be fun to dissect some projects that we all know really well um not fan fiction projects but I mean like professional works um and see the external and internal motivations that happen there so we're going to try to do that too um but what I wanted to say first was I wanted to say thank you to everybody who um, participates in the Rough Trade Forum um, and who comes and asks questions on the Ask Me Anything page. Because as a writer, uh, one of my most favorite parts of being a writer is um, being part of a, a, a larger writing community. And the people uh, in my in my real life, in my in the flesh bag world, <laughs> they're all very mature writers right now. We don't have any young writers in our group. And um, while it's always fun to throw ideas around with other writers and talk about that and talk about different processes and, and what we've got going on. Um, and Julie and I discussed that on Friday, you know, just, you know, inter- um, interacting with other writers. There's something really amazing about, um, giving back and and kind of uh it's just really awesome to to see you guys on rough trade uh seeing your craft mature seeing you um interact with each other and um really uh just just grow as as writers it's it's really awesome it's it's really awesome and it's not and it's not something that I get in the real world anymore because I have at the the youngest writer in our group is in her 30s, and she's been writing for 15 years. So at, at this point, there is nobody in my writing group in um, who doesn't have um, upwards of 10 years or more of writing experience. And so it's a different vibe in the group now because uh, we all have our process down. We all have our... Um, our methods and our our way of approaching a story and approaching a character and it's just there's <clears throat> there's something really awesome about um interacting with new and um young writers and writers who are just coming on to it whether no, no matter your age uh it isn't about age when i say young writer i don't mean your young person i just mean as a writer you're new, um, and there's so much energy in a new writer and um, uh, someone who's just really, really falling in love with um, 
riding right in front of your eyes. It is awesome. It is just the most amazing experience that um, I can have, um, having been um, riding for 30 years. I've been riding for 30 years. This is my, actually my 30-year anniversary as a rider. Um, uh, so, yeah, I've been riding for 30 years. Um, I know I sound about 12. Um, I'm not. <laughs> But this is my anniversary um, um, as a writer. Um, I'll be um, uh, 30 years a writer in, I guess, I kind of mark it as the Christmas I got my typewriter. Now, I had been writing in a notebook that whole year, but when I got my typewriter, it was like, I'm a writer. I was so excited to get that first typewriter. Um, it's a brother. I still have it. It still works. Um I need new ink in it, though. Uh, and it's just, I don't have that anymore. And um, I don't have that um, that expectation of, um, <laughs> thank you, Azure. I at least sound 15. That's great. 14. 14? Really? Okay. <laughs> That's my best friend in the chat room telling me I sound 14. Okay. Okay. I see how you bitches are going to roll tonight. Um, but so like I was just saying that it's just, it's really awesome to be a part of rough trade and to um, have all this new energy um, in, uh, in my world as a writer, uh, because um, it's really awesome to see that kind of thing happening and to see your craft mature and to see you um, moving through um, uh moments that a lot of us have already experienced and so it's just it's really fun so i want to thank you for participating in rough trade i want to thank you for asking me questions on the ask me anything page and i hope you encourage i encourage you to continue to do both because um i i like to say and i mean it um i want to learn something new every day and i every time i write I learned something new about me, and I learned something new about my craft, and um, um, I want every project to be better than the last, uh, and the day that isn't true is the day I'll probably stop writing, because that's just crazy. Why would you, you know, keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, you know? Um. So, uh, anyways, we're going to get started. Chestnut Nola's question is, um, you've discussed character motivations and consequences quite a bit, particularly how external motivations can forward your plot. I'm wondering how you structure the internal motivations of your characters and how that moves with, within the overall plot. What do you think of the internal narrative of a character and how that shapes your story? I find the external plot is often very clear to me while the internal plot and the growth of the character is often elusive until I sit down to write. Thanks. I, there are, there are two new prompts on, um, rough trade. Um, one is Darcy Lewis for the character. She's probably my favorite, um, minor character in the, uh, um, in the MCU. Um, she really cracks me up. I wrote, um, Darcy as she Hulk. It, Cause it amuses me. Um, 
and um, there's also uh, Gun is our uh, theme prompt over on Rough Trade this week. And I'll have new ones next week. It'll be a, a male character. Um, unless I do like a non-specific character prompt, because I am considering <laughs> and Lint. Lint will definitely be the theme prompt next week. It will definitely be the theme prompt. Um, but it's a, it's an inside joke for, for people on the podcast. But still, yeah, absolutely, you guys can have Lint as the prompt. And I expect a lot of you to respond to Lint. You're on notice. A thousand words. Or less. 500 to a thousand words. Lint is your prompt. Um, I do have some non-gender specific prompts for the characters. Um including um, the anti-hero, the villain, um, and then um, uh, see, I just I just lost that shit. It just fell right out of my head. Can you hear that? No, there's no voting. No, um, I'm in charge. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Rule 63, the hero, the villain, the unreliable narrator, which Jilly has already told me she hates. Um, um, so if I don't do one of those, I will be doing a, um, a male character. And I want to pick a fandom we haven't been into yet. Um, something um, interesting and uh, uh, just just somewhere to go that I don't see often in fandom because I, I kind of view the prompts as an opportunity for us to expand our horizons um, on that front. So, um, but it'll be cool. Anyways, time to get started. Jilly, 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 where are you? There you are. I think that's you. Yep, it's me. I always confuse your phone numbers. Well, it's the same three numbers, just in different orders. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sick? I've got a cold, and I lose like an octave in my voice when I've got a cold. But you know. yeah, I can tell. <laughs> but you're guys, cool. Can you, can you guys hear me? Okay, I'm fine. Okay. Because <clears throat> your voice is actually just a little bit lower than mine naturally. Yeah. At least from my ear. So. Yeah, I would say we're we're. I'm a little a little lower than you normally. But when I get a cold, it's like, you know, that upper upper end of my voice just, just gets trashed. So. Okay. Um, well, what I would say about um, how I structure internal motivation is um, that I endeavor to remove my character from. A point of victimization, and what I see in a lot of young writers, um, new writers, if you want to use that term instead, new writers, is that their character is constantly responding to external um, situations. They're not proactive, and when your character isn't proactive ever in your narrative, you create um, a continuous victim to their circumstances, in fact, I would say in canon that pretty much sums up Harry Potter. Yeah, just tossed around on the on the by the whims of fate and there's no no asserting himself and taking control of shit, which is I think that's why it's such a common theme 
of um, they call it independent Harry, which it really means mm-hmm. he just digs his heels in basically and says, "I'm going to do what I want right here, and not what um, is dictated by other people's actions." It's it's really. I, you know, when I think about it, I can't think of a single thing that Harry does in canon that isn't a response to somebody else's actions. No, even the thing that he really enjoys, which is, you know, presumably, which is playing Quidditch, he didn't seek that, and he didn't seem to embrace it with any great enthusiasm. It was more sort of bullied into it in a way. It wasn't even bullied. It was just sort of like, you're going to do this. And he's like, okay. Trust I like upon flying. him and okay. Okay. I like flying. Sure, I'll play really? footage. Whatever. <laughs> I should catch that thing. Okay, I'll, I'll catch that thing. <laughs> it's I'll just catch every moment he's being prodded and pushed and shoved forward by external motivations. And that can be... Um, you create a situation where your character is a victim. Because I don't know what Harry Potter's in, um, internal motivations are. They seem to be not be with the Dursleys. And that also puts him in a place of being, and that's the way you, I read it, right? Um, and that also puts him in a place of being a victim is when your internal motivation is to avoid something. But really, um, if his internal motivations are coming from external events, then that's more about um, reactions. Mm -hmm. Those are reactions, not needs or wants or desires. These are not goals. I think Harry wants a family. I think that that is something, and that's probably, if you were to assume that the epilogue made any kind of sense, um, the only way that could come about is if his internal motivation um, was driven on, I want a family. I want to be part of a family. And um, and he sort, yeah, of, I can see he, that. He, he sort of stumbles into a family with the Weasleys in, in a fashion, after a fashion. So it becomes the family that he knows, that's the family that he has, and so from there, I don't think Jenny was a um, a particular, seemingly a particular desire, but just to remain part of that family. Which so is a reaction, he, right. like, like Jeep just said in the chat room. Um, Jeep also said it escaped from abuse. That's actually not true. Um, if it was a motivation he would have done something about it when when Dumbledore tells Harry he can't help him that he has to go home to Privet Drive Harry accepts it mm-hmm. every year he's forced back into that house and every year he protests in some form or another but he goes back every time and what when in terms of his internal motivation um what he saw in the mirror of Aristide is telling is that he saw a family 
his heart's desire. Right. That's what he wanted. That's what he most wanted in the world was, at the time, parents, but you could extrapolate that and say he wanted to be part of a loving family. That's what he most wanted. <clears throat> Which would explain a lot of why he put up with a lot of the shit he put up with from Ron if he perceived the Weasleys early on as his surrogate family. So he forgave Ron in a way you would forgive your sibling. Right. When you wouldn't forgive other people for the shit, for doing that shit, you know, but if he's viewing Ron already as a sibling or, you know, wanting that relationship with Ron, it, it does make sense that he forgave Ron all of his, um, self-centered bullshit. So I was reading something um, a few days ago about, um, because we talk about in story structure, you need to have a goal, motivation, and conflict. And um, you could argue that there's an external GMC and an internal GMC as well. Um, And And I was reading this thing that talked about how to how you could, de- in one statement, define your internal goal, motivation, and conflict. And well, so let's pick Harry. And you say, Harry, Harry wants something because something, but something. And in one sentence, you should be able to encapsulate that internal drive. So if he wants a family. Um, because so let's talk about what the because was because that would be the motivation. The goal is the goal is the having a family. So the motivation is because he's never had one, and he feels alone. But I would say that that puts his internal conflict. But Dumbledore is around, <laughs> and Voldemort is the external conflict. Yes, because. Voldemort took his parents and he stands in the way of Harry having a successful future where he could have a wife and children that would be safe. Oh, that's really annoying. <laughs> What's really annoying? Just the, just, just the structure. Yeah, structure can be annoying. But sometimes that, sometimes, sometimes some structures help some people sort things out and it doesn't help everybody kind of define things but if your character has a goal if they have a motivation and they don't have that thing already then you inherently have a conflict right there's a reason they right. don't have what their goal is so the, so there's you should be able to dissect the internal and external goal, goal motivation and conflict for your character so like in the story that I'm working on for Nano um, I would, you know, I could say Tony wants a mate, but he's tired of being because he's tired of being alone. But he has to solve this other problem first, you know. And it's very simple, but that kind of is it drives him. What drives him internally? Um, 
now the external the external plot actually the external plot in in that story is much bigger than the internal um I was off the chat room for a second, and I lost several comments. Let's see. It's okay. While you're doing that, I'll talk. Go for it. <laughs> okay. One of the things that I do to structure my um, external and internal motivations is I – you're going to think this is crazy. And I actually got it from my cousin, who's also a writer, and um, uh, I've kind of tweaked it a little bit because she does it a little bit differently than I do. Um but what uh, we eventually came upon together as we talked about how to um, balance external and internal motivations is that um, until you can plot them together, plot them separately. Mm-hmm. Do your external plot first. Write down all of your events. Start to finish if you're a plotter. If you're not a plotter, then this really, um, I don't know how much it'll help you, but maybe it'll help you a little bit. I hope. Okay. So write down all of your external events. Take that plot, put it down in front of you, get you a piece of paper, a separate one, and write down how your character reacts to that first event. What does that first event do to your character? How does it impact your character? What is your character's goals? Put your character's goal at the top of your page. Write down what happens in the first event. How did, I mean, the, the first event, how does it impact your character? How does it impact their goals? What does your character get from this event? event two. Do the same thing all the way down until you've got all your events covered and how those events impact your character. Now, these are your character reactions. These are not your internal motivations. At least for me, because they're not goals. They are reactions to external events. Okay? So, get you another piece of paper. Put your character's goal at the top. Look at the event. Look at your character's reactions. Give your character a goal. Give your character a need, a want, Think about their emotional impact. Think about how this event impacts their goals and their desires and their needs and their wants. If you have a central motivation and you weave it through your entire narrative, this is where you do it on page three or on sheet of several pages three. And then (laughs) you go to your computer, you sit down. You write down your first plot event. Then you put your character's reactions and your character's motivations under that event. You can do bullet points. You can do one, two, three, four, whatever whatever it works out in your head. Event two, put down your character's reactions and your character's wants and emotional needs based on 
his reactions, and the external event. That is how I build a plot. And that is why, in case you're curious, all those little one-shots on my site are just that. Because I didn't do any of that for that stuff, so I wouldn't be able to expand on it. It's just a thing right there by itself. It, it doesn't really exist anywhere else. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense to me. I think that when you're, um, when I'm putting together, if I, I like you said, it's for me, and maybe not for everybody. Some people are very um, character motivation driven, and they kind of let the plot, the plot fall out from that. Um, when I have a story idea. And I um, don't pa- stop to really consider character motivation. Sometimes I get into the writing, and all of a sudden I'm having a problem. And it's because you I get, get into bitten the writing. On the ass. Right, I get into the writing before I go. My character would never do that. Um, and I think people sometimes tend to kind of go, go this. It's easy to then say, and I hear this sometimes: my character doesn't mm-hmm. want to do what I want it to do what I want him to do. My character doesn't I want to be written people. that way. Um, and that's not it. That's not, it's not that the character wants to do something different. It's that you have a notion. You have, as, as a writer, we tend to understand what the internal, we tend to have an internal consistency about our characters. Um, I have a notion about how most of the characters I really enjoy writing how they would respond and react to certain situations. And sometimes I forget to check that internal consistency against the plot. And then I get to the writing, and it seems like my character doesn't want to cooperate, and I'm making little finger quotes. But that's not what's going on. The issue is there's a breakdown in my process, and I am being internally consistent about my character, and it it doesn't fit the plot I came up with. Because it's not translating to paper, basically. Right, basically. Sometimes it's sort of like, I got stuck in the middle of um, the most recent story I did, Imperfect. I got stuck um, smack dab in the middle, and I couldn't go on. I was having a really hard time marching to the plot that I had. And the problem was, it was what we talked about, you mentioned right at the very beginning, was character that is being tossed about by the whims of fate, and kind of is a little bit in victim mode. And that's not how I like to write Tony at all. But he was in a situation, realistically, where he was out of the driver's seat. He had kind of lost all control of everything. And in order to and make the plot happen... And that's when an alpha reader really helps. Yeah, they really do help at that point. When you get stuck, an alpha reader is just the best thing. Because what I realized I needed to do, it didn't have to be a big moment. I needed to insert a moment where Tony gained control again and got back in the driver's seat of his life. And then I could proceed with the plot the way I had planned it. But he needed that moment where he was back in control and where he was directing his life and not just reacting to circumstances. Because sometimes every that does happen. I mean, life gets out of control and we just react. And, I mean, I know I'm that way. Is when things get kind of bonkers. I have to have that moment where I go, okay, we've been reacting. We've got to get back in strategic mode and quit being so damn tactical. I have to plan something here. i got to get, you know, 
this is going to take a moment and take a step back. And once I inserted that into the plot where he had that time to get in control and feel like he was back in the driver's seat, then the rest of the thing just kind of like, like, like word vomit. It just kind of was done. And I went from being stuck for weeks to just being finished in an afternoon. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's that kind of, um, but that, that was where the, the character, the consistency of the character, the character voice, the character's motivation. And that's not even as much about goal motivation and conflict as it is the internal consistency of the character didn't match um, the the way the story was plotted. Because and, Tony was constantly reacting to external motivators. Right. Um, so. And I did the read on that story. That's why I know what she's talking about when it comes to that. <sighs> yeah, because I, I, Kara had read it, and I said something is not right. And she said, well, he's, he's really kind of, in, in victim mode here, and I knew what you meant by victim mode. Um, and, you know, he, that's just not the way I would normally write the character. Cause, I mean, I would, it, it could start that way, but it couldn't end that way, you know. Um, and that's the direction it was going, was it was going towards him making it all the way to the end and never having ever gotten back in control. And that was the critical missing piece to finishing. Um so um so there's there's when you're when you're working on if you think you have all those pieces if you know why your character is doing what they're doing and you think they know and you think you've got these pieces you've got your external GMC you've got your internal GMC and you get into it doesn't make sense then you got to go back and look at your inconsistency about your character because characters don't want to be written in a certain way but you perceive them in a certain way and sometimes we have plots story ideas that are not consistent with how we we are even, you know, it, what matters is how we see the character. It's not consistent with the character. So an example was that Star Trek, the big fucking plot thing we did. Um, not, yeah, where um, Blair and Blair, the person that was dramatically out of character was Blair. Blair leaves Earth giving all sentinels and guides in the future the giant fuck you. Um, no, that's not going to work. That's not the way that's going to go down because Blair wouldn't do that. So, um, because I could say Blair's goal, motivation, and conflict is is thus, but if it doesn't match how what his characterization, then when you get to writing, it's just going to go. Well, this feels wrong. Well, yeah, it does feel wrong. Give you that characterization issue. One of the things that you see in fandom a lot is you see writers writing a character a certain way. Um, I'm going to repeat that in a minute, Dark. <laughs> um, you see them doing it over and over and over again. Spencer's always a victim. Blair's always a victim. Tony's always a victim. And that's because they are they have that... Um, that is how they unconsciously view that character and it comes out every single time. And you look at my own work and you can see the way I write John Shepard um, um, and the way I write Harry Potter. 
but then you also, I, I try often, I mean, I try to depart from, and I think I've been more successful with John than I have with, um, with, with Harry. Um, because I find Harry's canon circumstances so frustrating um, that I have a very difficult time making him vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Whereas John is such a blank slate when it comes to his past, you know very little about that. Um, so it's easy to to move him a little on my mental scale uh, because the John you meet in Ties That Bind is um, much more open emotionally than the John that is in um, what might have been. Um, whereas the John that I wrote in um, the air that angels breathe is he grew up with a father who loved him and he grew up protected and um, he's open to love he expects love whereas the John and what might have been is kind of surprised by it He wants it desperately. He craves, demands respect. The John in Ties to Bind um, expects respect and is startled when he doesn't get it. (laughs) So... Um, you're, so somebody asked a question about um, the trick of moving the character from vulnerable and then move them to a state that is no longer vulnerable, one that is strong in the weakness that in your character first presented. Vulnerability and weakness is not the same thing, and I wouldn't equate them. Um, I actually relate to characters who can be emotionally vulnerable, Um but it depends upon the context of the vulnerability, right? Um, if you're if you have a character who's in a position to be who's emotionally vulnerable to others, and that puts them in a position of being hurt by others all the time, then I would characterize that as a potential. Um, if they're being hurt all the time and allowing that to go on, I would I would characterize that as a weakness, not a vulnerability. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, it does. So, and it's not even so much as taking, if if your character is, is in a place, we often want to see, um, if you're writing character-driven stories, um, we often want to see some kind of transformation in the character. Um, it doesn't have to be big, it doesn't have to be major, but especially in Fix It Fix, we're looking for that moment where they, where they are, um, and it's not stepping away from their vulnerabilities, but it's, it's taking control of the things that are, often hurting them or working against them or whatever. We see this with Harry Potter. That's why the independent Harry thing is so big in NCIS, the Tony leaves trope. Um, And that's about that moment of transformation where Tony has had enough and he walks away from unhealthy circumstances or where Harry has taken control of his life because he's tired of being tossed about on the... And I wouldn't characterize those circumstances as vulnerabilities. I would characterize them as... um, um, 
difficult, sort of, they're weakened in a way by difficult external circumstances. Um, we talked about you. Um, you mentioned um, character driven. Um, there are two ways to to move your story. Um, one is plot driven. Um, one is letting your um, your plot do the driving, and one is letting your character do the driving. Um, when it comes to building your plot, you do it the same way because you can't determine how your character is going to react and develop goals until you know what your events are. So always right. build your events first, then build your character reactions, and then build your goals. Because he doesn't just have one goal. Your character might have a central motivation, um, but goals and desires will emerge based on um, reactions to events. But bear in mind, when you're doing this, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. To a degree, to some degree, reverse engineering works where you have all the events and then you work backward. Um, meaning, you know what you want to happen and then you build your character backwards until you get the character that will fit that plot. The problem when you do that, and sometimes when you work backwards, is you lose internal consistency. And that's exactly the how I came to some of the problems I've had, is when you build your character backwards instead of building your character forwards, you start from the ground up. And what will happen is, let's say you do what Kara's talked about, and you've got all of your things, and you've got your character. And your character needs to be well-defined and clear in your head. And then you apply that character to that circumstance. And you go, how are they going to react? What are they going to think? What are they going to do? If you start, you, what you may start to find when you when you take both and you you build them in parallel, and you apply, you build your character, you build your plot, and then you apply your character to your plot, is you may find your plot doesn't stand up, which is exactly what I was talking about. And that's actually a better thing to find out early on is that your plot and your characterization are not in sync than to try to build it backward and build a character that will fit your plot, and then you get to writing and find that they have no internal consistency. What what Julie is saying, um, Chris, is before you start your plot, you need to know your character. Uh, do a character profile if you're not familiar. Figure out who they are, what they want, how they're going to get it, what they're capable of doing to get it. Just keep all of that in. Chestnut, I'll answer the rest of your internal, your um, narrative question um, as the show goes on, so I hope you can come back and listen to it later. And have a good sleep. Good night. Um, (laughs) uh, So... If you build your character profiles first, which is actually the first step I take after research, my plot is the last thing I do. And I should have said that up front. I just assumed that everybody would be... I assumed you guys were in my head, and I apologize for that. I I have a central premise 
for my story. I do any research I need to do. Um, then I build my character profiles. I make a character list. Okay, who do I need for this story? Who's going to be important? Who's my main character? Is there going to be a love interest? What kind of story is this going to be? I, I answer all these questions first. Then I build my character profiles. Not for every character. Some of them is just like a paragraph or a name and an occupation because some of them aren't really as important as others. My main characters always get a profile if I'm if they're if they're new to me. But it, writing Harry Potter isn't new to me, or writing John Shepard isn't new to me. So I don't need to go and rebuild a character profile for John. I already have one, and I normally write him pretty much the same um, from an on top perspective. And once you know your character, you can assign reactions to your plot events based on what you know about your character. Right? Yep. Was that, was that what you were saying? This is exactly <laughs> that's what I, I got out of it. <laughs> it is because I, if, I don't know if you've even ever read a story um, where the character seems like they're crafted to fit a desired outcome rather than be the character that just be a character. It's like their, their, their behavior, their actions are not consistent with the way they are. Um, and as I'm not saying you have to be a slave to canon, but when you're working with a character that is defined to some degree, if you make them wildly divergent in some ways, but keep them consistent with canon and others, and those areas of divergence um, are making a plot happen, it feels like the character's reactions are just driven to make, artificially driven to make a plot happen. It just feels very transparent to me. And um, Then your whole story feels contrived. Contrived. And I call that reverse engineering <laughs> a character. You have a plot and you back, you back end the character to fit the plot. Um. And sometimes, and sometimes it happens that you come up with a great idea, and then you realize that your character doesn't fit it, um, and then you tweak the plot until it does. And that can be done, you know. I've I've had to tweak plots left, right, and center. Um, and it, and the thing is, when they're when they're right, when they get them right to where they're consistent with what the character, with the way the character would actually behave, they feel so much better. It's like, oh, this is actually better than the original idea I had because the character would actually exist in this world. They would do these things. Lady Holder asked in the chat room, um, what about if he's in a new universe? I think it's even more important when you take an established character like John Shepard and you put him down in a new universe, like I did with Synthetic. Um, if... He's not recognizable as John Shepard. I might as well be writing an original character. So keeping your um, yeah, even in um, even um, even in my Halo universe where he is a Spartan, um, uh, he um, the the core of John is still there. It, it has to be. Because if the core of, of John is, is not there, then he's not recognizable, and I might as well call him Tom. Or Dick. Or Harry. Because yeah. <laughs> he could be any Tom, Dick, or Harry. <laughs> so the point is, is when you're moving a character into the universe, you need to put it to a new universe. You need to decide for yourself um, what is central to their character. 
John is John, John Shepard is stupidly heroic. He's emotionally constipated. <laughs> He's stubborn. Um, I read an awesome fic once where somebody said that John Shepard walked around Atlantis with a Teflon coating. Could anything be truer? No. So so accepting these central points about your character for good and bad, um, once you have those down and um, they become part of your unconscious, like what... Jilly was saying that you have a um, you have a conceptual idea of of who your character is um, that you're going to instinctually write probably over and over and over again unless you purposefully try to move away from it. And I did do experiments with that, like with um, with the air that angels breathe, um, where I made John a little more vulnerable and a, and a little more open to love. And um, there's actually a moment in the air that angels breathe when I wrote a piece of dialogue for John and I was like I paused and I thought really and I thought yeah that that's totally what this John would say um because John tells Rodney um that uh basically uh that no one else in the universe deserves him more that John alone deserves Rodney that no one else does <laughs> he's that confident that he has more than earned all of John, um, Rodney's attention and affection. It's his. It belongs to him. And that isn't something that I think that I could write in any other verse. Because John is very confident in that verse of the, um, of the notion that he is entitled to love. And acceptance. Yeah. Right, and that it, you know, he he had a daddy who loved him, um, and that wasn't um, always apparent to John in the what might have been verse. Um, it is very true of the John in, in ties that bind. So you have um, a different John there who, but who who still has his core because he has to be recognizable. Uh, no matter what verse you put your your fandom character down in, if they're not recognizable, then you might as well be writing an an original character. And the hard thing comes if you cho- if you're working in an AU with a character we don't know much about in canon or they were a minor character in a show and we don't see them very much or that you have a minor character in um in a movie where you only see once or a secondary character in a movie. Uh that makes it it's, it's a real challenge to determine um what is what is internally consistent about that character um, so to those of you who tackled that in this in the nano I, my hat's off to you because I know that that's not easy to take a character where you don't have a lot of information and try to figure out what is central to them um and from that you know to do that when you do that, you're actually a little bit decoding the internal because the internal most stories don't come out and spell out to you 
goal motivation and conflict. And actually, if they do, and if it's really clear that that's being spelled out to you, I would really question what that writer's craft. But you should be able to decode it um, by the end of the story. And in a way, when you take a character that is not known much about, is in order to determine what they're, you kind of are decoding um, what you see of them in a show or whatever. Um, especially a character in a movie where we only ever see, like maybe only, we get two hours with them total. Um, you're decoding what um, central to them by a limited number of reactions and actions and interactions. And um, and it 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 it's a challenge and it can be done, um, but it's definitely not it's definitely not easy to to sort that stuff out because just look at all the you know the debate around Harry Potter which we got you know seven books and eight movies um, is decoding that stuff about Harry who we have tons of screen time with um, or book time with is actually really it's really challenging, uh, especially considering that most of the series is written from his point of view. Yeah, and that's really disturbing that it shouldn't be that challenging since it's all from his point of view. Well, it's because J.K. Rowling wrote from a... um, uh, We we talked about subjective and objective storytelling on Friday, um, and she wrote from an objective point of view a a, a great deal of the time. She wrote on top of her narrative a lot. He's not emotionally aware. He's not intellectually curious. So we don't learn jack shit about the magical world because it's all from Harry's point of view. Natasha asks, doesn't using a minor character like that give you lots of room to move and change that minor character provided it semi-fits with the rest of your headcanon? Um, (laughs) Minor characters are definitely the easiest to um, adjust. Um, But the thing is that you you can even adjust them too far, you know? if you don't know much about them, the 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 less you know about them, the more important what you do know about them is. So, if we know that someone is um, empathic um, and kind, and not much else about them, and you take that character and you make them a psychopathic villain, you've now written an original character. Because whereas you can tweak characters we know a lot about, you kind of just tweak one one or two traits up or down a little bit. You dial them up or down, and they're still recognizable, but now they're they're kind of an asshole. Um, when you take a character where we know almost nothing about and you erase what we do know, that's just writing an OC and tacking a familiar name on it. So I would say yes, your question with the proviso that the less you know about the character, the more you have to pay attention to what we do know. Otherwise, you, they aren't recognizable at all. Then you have some asshole reader come along and tell you that you're writing your character out of character. Yes, but, which I mean, I've it, honestly I've, never been accused of, and I know I've done it. <laughs> yeah, well, I get I get it about McGee all the time. Um, oh, fuck I that choose, shit! The way I choose to write McGee, <laughs> um, and you'd think I'd get it about Ziva because Ziva's the one that I I think I pull the furthest from 
Um, actually, not really. I just It's actually, I don't even pull her that far from canon. I just make everybody react in a logical way to her. Okay. So. Um, Natasha asks, what would be a good practice for writing an original character? Um, I am fucking delicate. I'm delicate fucking flower. I thought you bitches knew. Anyway. I knew you were, I knew you were a fragile little blossom. Yeah. Of course I am. A pansy, of course. Don't I sound like it? Yeah. Okay. What was your question? Oh, what would be a good practice for writing an original character? Um, Have a standard character profile you always fill out. You can find them online. You can make your own, wherever you think is important about your character. Look at a few um, online to just see how they work and then just, you know, make your own or, you know, use one of those. And um, I find it really helpful when I'm creating an OC, um, an original character, whether it's in my original work altogether or when um, I'm writing an OC in fandom, that um, if I assign an actor or an actress to the role, it helps me. Because if you're very familiar with an actor or actress, when you see them um, moving on TV shows and movies, you it helps you flesh your character out. How their voice sounds, how they would deliver words, how they would deliver sentences, the rhythm with which they would speak. It all comes to you when you give um, your character a familiar face. Even if you never share that face with anybody else, it's just for you. But definitely, definitely, definitely if you're worried about... Um, Create a character profile for your OC. I, I just I think that's the single best habit you can develop for creating an OC. Always, always do a character profile. Yep. Know how they sound. Know how they move. Know how they look. Know who they hate and who they love. Their favorite ice cream. Their favorite movie. The music they hate the most. Know these things about your characters because even if you never mention them outright in the narrative, no, having that knowledge about them will shape your character mentally for you and on and in your story in ways that you probably don't even recognize when you're doing it. I completely agree. The character profile is so core. It also makes your writing faster because if you know your character inside and out and how they're going to react and what they're going to say and what idioms they're more likely to use and what part of the country they're from, um, you know, when you're writing, you're just going to be able to, that stuff's just going to come out. It's just going to flow. And you're not going to have to stop and think about it. And they're not going to sound plastic and two-dimensional. Somebody said something that I just kind of want to, um, challenge a little bit is that someone said that fan fiction is always out of character because we aren't the creators and to a degree I understand the point um, that's being made at that statement but um, you're trying as a, as a fan fiction writer to preserve the essence of a character and you know if Gibbs is crying a lot um, that is not Gibbs character and no you're not trying to write him exactly the way the creators would because you're not the creator. You don't own the character. You can't make him exactly in character. But what you can do is try to keep him consistent 
with how um, the character's been established because um, when you diverge wildly, it's not the character anymore. So there is out of character. Um, and we see that, I see that a lot in the Harry Potter fandom. Uh, and Kara may not agree with me on this point, but I see this a lot in the Harry Potter fandom where you put Harry in an AU, you change the way he looks, you change his name. You, actually, the only thing he's got is his name. He's got his name and his green eyes, but he looks different. He talks different. He's not magical. He's human. He's got a family. Every single thing about him is different. And he acts different, he behaves different, and you still call him Harry Potter. Well, it's not Harry Potter anymore. No, it's not. I do have a slightly different answer to that, though. Um, I do think it's absolutely, I think there are a lot of talented writers in the fandom that can absolutely write in canon characterization. I've seen it. Um, I think one of the best, most awesome examples of that would be um, Freedom is Nothing Left to Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. It always trips me up. That is so on point for Rodney's character that it is mind-blowing. What I will say is that no writer in fandom is capable of writing canon. So whenever I see the word canon tagged on a fic, I double bird. Because fuck you, you can't write canon. <laughs> and what they're saying, I mean, what they're basically saying is they're writing compliant to canon. Um, they're not putting you yeah, off in like an you AU. Yeah, you should say canon compliant. But then you right, open it canon. up and it's not fucking canon compliant because John and Rodney are having sex. Look, if there is a version of Stargate Atlantis where that happened... In another country, you bitches need to fucking send that to me. I'm yeah. just saying. Now, if by canon compliant you mean it's not an AU, I mean the thing is we don't have we don't have good tags, you know, for saying um, I'm working within the canon, but changing all the shit that I don't like. I mean that's basically what you're t- people are talking about. Um, although the people I know, the, like you said, a lot of times the show the stories that mark things as canon compliant. You get into them off are the biggest divergence from canon. It's like, okay. And also, I actually don't think, um, I think all fan fiction is AU. Once you change one thing in canon, you're writing in an alternate universe. Well, yeah, but I think of alternate universe. I mean, the, the, this is the problem with phrases that mean the same thing. When, when different things, when you use AU, everything's an AU, because I hear that people say everything's an AU. Well, then how do you, um, what do you call it when you've got um, Sentinels and Guides or when you've got um, the cast of CSI in The Lord of the Rings? I would call that, and that's what I think of as like something, or everybody's sitting in a bakery or everybody's in high school. I mean, those are ten, tends to be what I tend to think of as being AUs, where the universe is dramatically different, but... You know, but and there's and then if you call everything a if everything if all fan fiction is AU, which I agree with you conceptually, then you then there needs to be a term for where you're removing your characters from their canon circumstances, like alternate reality. Yeah, that would work too. Because I really, if if there is an alternate reality where John and Rodney got it on, I I want to see it. 
I am willing to make an exception for my pirating, my anti-pirating stance on TV shows, and I will download that shit. Send me a link. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, most people when they talk about AUs, they're referring to circumstances that are dramatically different from canon. Um, but you know, I also get that everything that fan fiction is. Um, dramatically different from canon because that's the point well see here's what i would say about the alternate universe concept is it's kind of like time travel and this is one of the problems that i see in new writers especially um when you have a character travel back in time and they make a change one change that change will ripple out through, excuse me, that change should ripple out throughout the entire verse. Because everything is relative. It's all connected. You make a change, it's all connected. It, it's going to ripple out in negative and positive ways. The same can be true for just a regular AU. You take an AU where there is no time travel. You, you got Harry, and you make a change to Harry. And Julie touched on this earlier. That change has impact. If it doesn't have impact, then why do it? If Harry goes to Diagon Alley and decides he's not going back to Privet Drive after um, uh, Hagrid puts him on the train and he goes and stays in the leaky cauldron for a month, that's going to change the Harry Potter that ends up on the train. Because he's going to be interacting with other magicals that whole month. He's going to meet Tom earlier. He's going to be on the alley. He's going to interact with people at the ice cream shop. He's going to meet, maybe he goes back to the bank. Anything that he does, this is going to impact who Harry is the moment he gets on the train. This is not the wide-eyed kid who didn't know jack shit that Ron Weasley met the first time around. This is a kid who spent a whole month on Diagon Alley. He knows a little bit more than the other Harry would have. Possibly he might not. He might even realize that Ron's a big old liar when Ron says there was nowhere else to sit on the train. Because are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> or if you got, um, if you write Or he knew um, how to get on the train and didn't need the Weasleys at all. Because maybe somebody told him where the flu connection was, so he didn't have to go through the muggle world. Maybe he didn't want to go back right. to the muggle world. Or Tom so took him in and took him to the train station or put him through the flu to make sure he got where he was supposed to go, like any fucking responsible adult would have. Right. Because you, and you also you cannot, <laughs> you cannot tell me there's not another way to get on the platform because there's no way that those purebloods are walking through a muggle train station every year. There's just no way. Except for apparently Molly Weasley, who can't remember the damn platform, even though she went to Hogwarts for seven fucking years. And Which she is put, why we all thought that, that whole point, thing was contrived. At that point, five contrived. other fucking kids through Hogwarts, I'm just saying. Right. It's contrived. But if you have um, if you have a com- completely changed recant, that's a, that's a little change. Harry spends a month on the alley. It's a little change. But if you change... Harry grows up in a loving, supportive family, um, and then he goes to Hogwarts and gets up to all the same shenanigans. The same exact no, shit? 
no, that makes no, you have, I have no, that has been done so many times. It's like, why would he do I wanna that? I want to punch people. Why would he Why'd do you that? Bother? Why would why would he? Why would he go? Why would he go into that room? Go, go into that room? Why would he say anything about the third, the three-headed dog? Why? Why would he? Why wouldn't he have reported the mirror of Arised thing to his family? Why would he? Why would he, if he had loving, supportive parents? Why would he have stole supplies from Professor Snape's um, potions cupboard? Why? Why would he have done these things? And there is, I mean, when you're sitting there, this is when you have the suspension of disbelief problem. Is when your readers are just sitting there questioning this thing. The suspension of disbelief is broken, and it's. If no Harry has awesome parents, why didn't he mail them, owl them, to let them know he found a fucking three-headed dog, right in school? Jenny's a plot device in book two. G Ten says, but Jenny talked to the diary, and she came from a loving family. But Jenny also came from a family of seven children, where she had to fight for attention. Imagine growing up with the twins, who were constantly taking their mother's time and attention because they're so hyperactive. They're always up to something. They're always doing this. And then she's got Molly, you know, Jenny in the house, and of course Molly is overprotective as fuck. Jenny has to sneak out of the house to ride a broom. Whereas all of her brothers get to do it. Naturally. So here Jenny is. She's going to Hogwarts. She doesn't have any friends yet. Her brothers are ignoring her. She's got Harry Potter living in the same dorm with her. And she's overwhelmed with fucking hero worship. Because her mom spoon fed her all that boy who lived shit. This is a very vulnerable little girl who's got no, basically no attention at home. Unless it was oppressive smothering helicopter or broom riding Molly. <laughs> right? So she goes exactly. to school and here is this diary and it's all for her and the diary talks back to her and the diary gives her all the attention that she's not getting from anybody else. So I never questioned Jenny's talking to the diary or not telling anybody about the diary because it was special and it was just for her. Nobody else had it and, and nobody else. Um, right. And who else could she knew talk about to it? About, it was a special secret. And who else could she talk to about all the things like her crush? I'm sure that was on her mind massively is her hero worship and crush for Harry. And she couldn't talk to her brothers about it. And she probably would have seemed, you know, ridiculous to her roommates. Who else is she going to talk to? Jean did kind of go bonkers. Absolutely. So, you know, I never I never questioned, in fact, out of all the things that I do question in book two, Jenny's motivation behind keeping the diary isn't one of them. Um, because it gave her all the time and attention and even affection that she wasn't getting from anybody else. The diary was her friend. And if you think about yourself at 11 years old, you'll do a lot for a friend. Especially someone, even in a diary, who who makes you feel special. 
But see, Riddle didn't charm the diary that way because Harry wrote in the diary and talked to Ron about it. Although, but Jenny finally had something that was special that was just her own that nobody else and it hadn't been written in. It might look it, it might have looked old, but it didn't look like it had been written in. So she was the first person to ever have it, as far as she knew, except for Tom, who had it, and and left something of himself in there. A little bit of creepy bit of himself in there. Yeah, and it yeah, and it, right, secrets are very powerful at eleven. She must have felt so special to have that diary get talked back to her. Why on earth would she ever have parted with it? In fact, she didn't part with it until it started making her kill. And then she wanted it back. Then she wanted it back because she missed the the attention and the support because Tom supported her. Tom told her her all her feelings were valid. She wasn't getting validation anywhere else. Now, as to why Harry had the diary and didn't fucking turn it over to McGonagall, I don't even know. For fuck's sake. And also, why didn't the diary... You know, this has always bothered me. If Harry is a horcrux and Voldemort's spirit in Quirrell's body made his scar hurt... Why didn't any of the other Horcruxes make Harry's um, scar hurt? Don't you wish you could have a sit-down with J.K. Rowling and ask questions and go, so what's your explanation for all these inconsistencies? You know what? That isn't the question that I would ask J.K. Rowling. You know what I would ask J.K. Rowling? Are you a plotter or a pantser? (laughs) And her answer would tell me everything I need to know. I think there's really only one answer. There really is only one answer to that. And don't get me wrong, I love the Harry Potter books for all their flaws and imperfections and um, her creativity and her, her imagination. I mean, I love the Harry Potter books. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I totally agree. The Horcrux thing wasn't a thing until well after book four. <laughs> I think the horcruxes became a thing around book four, book five. Yeah, it felt tacked on. Um, I think that, you know, that is, the, the somebody mentioned that the reason why Harry didn't go to McGonagall is because he didn't trust adults due to his upbringing. I think that that um, is used as a um, a reason a lot in, in the actual story that, that you're supposed to buy into that. But, he breaks from that pattern repeatedly. Um, now, he doesn't often get the results he expects, but he does make the attempt over and over. But I do think repeatedly. I think, yeah, I do think there's a comment on my side about that. I do think we're expected to believe that that's the reason why Harry never says anything about certain things. But she kind of trots it out as a plot device when she needs it, and then puts it away. I mean, there's no Harry has no consistency. In that in that area about the not trusting adults. His, his, I wrote the, a short. Um, it's uh, what did I call that? Hermione and Harry have a conversation, and she and she's being stalked by Victor, and so Harry takes her to McGonagall and asks him 
asks her to fix the problem because he doesn't know what to do with it and agrees to be Hermione's boyfriend. Now, I had a commenter who said that um, said it was completely out of character because Harry never asked for help and Hermione was the slave to authority. Now, I never really addressed this question on my site, I mean, this, this comment. Um, I did have a snarky-ass response, but I deleted it. But anyways, um, here's the thing about Harry Potter. That is absolutely the most untrue thing anybody has ever put on my fucking website. Hermione is not a slave to authority. Hermione is afraid of being punished. And there is a big difference. Hermione breaks rules throughout the entire fucking book series. It's called problem solving. Thank you, Jeep. Um, and um, she actually believes, literally, she says it in the first book, that being expelled is worse than her actual death. She's not invested in following the rules because she doesn't. She's invested in not being punished. She steals potions ingredients. She brews polyjuice illegally in the school in a girl's bathroom. She doses Ron and Harry and herself with polyjuice that cannot be legal. legal. She cheats at Quidditch to get Ron on the Quidditch team. That happened with a three with a three headed dog. Um, she knew as a first year during their first few mo- months of of um, school, she already knew the unlocking charm. Why the fuck did she already learn the locking charm on well, the unlocking knew, charm? She knew spells on the. Um, she on the did magic at home. Right, clearly. Before she came to school, she breaks the rules all the time. So it's not so much that she's invested in rules. It's that she's invested in not getting caught and not being punished. I do think she had a... um, And I don't think this was an investiture in the rules so much as it was Right, she's afraid of consequences. She is afraid of consequences, but she also does tend to think that, um, and this is one of those things of where um, if this is something that can be spun as a weakness in a character or spun as a positive in a character, is she has a lot of confidence in her opinion and in that she knows the right way to do things. Um, and like I said, that, in that this is, you know, characters are not two-dimensional. They're not black and white. Um, and so, because um, that, that whole thing with the broom, that I did not read as her being her her um, being a slave to authority or being invested in the rules, but that she thought that she was right, and she was so convinced of it that she well, went she, around well, in Harry. Her, in, in her defense, she was right. <laughs> well, she was right, but that you see that particular 
that would be an example of something people would call up as her being a slave to authority or a slave to the rules. And I didn't read it that way. I read that as her being convinced she was right. Um, and also because she was afraid that it would hurt Harry. Right, right. But here's another thing about Hermione Granger. During her third year, she broke the law, helped a convict escape prison, disarmed and stunned a professor. Face. She set Snape on fire in the first. She set Snape on fire in the third. This is not a child who respects authority. This is a child who does not want to be punished. But more, she's probably a child who doesn't think she should ever be punished. Which is definitely a typical only child. <laughs> Very typical. She is... She manipulates her circumstances to avoid punishment. Which I don't think equates to a slave to authority. But let's talk about Harry and him never asking for help. Because that is patently untrue. Right. He asked Dumbledore for help. The he fifth asked book is McGonagall. Uh-huh. The fifth book is the biggest tribute to Harry asking for help over and over and over and over again. In his second year, he um, decides that they're going to go into the um, the chamber. What's he do? He goes and gets an adult. It wasn't the best choice he could have made for an adult, granted, but he did go get one. And he didn't mm-hmm. give them the option of telling him no, like McGonagall had the year before. <laughs> she, she didn't get the. She got an option to say no. Um, what was his name? Gilder, um, Gilderoy. Gil- Gilderoy Lockhart. Lockhart. Lockhart didn't get an opportunity to tell Harry no. <laughs> Book three comes around. He repeatedly asked people. About Sirius Black. He asked Arthur Weasley. He he asked McGonagall to sign his permission form. Over, repeatedly over and over again, he's asking for adults to intervene on his behalf, and they don't. Yeah, they do use Lockhart as a human shield, but he did go get an adult. And this is not a kid who's not afraid. You know, he's He knows what adults sh- should be for, even if they don't always meet his expectations. At the end of book so, three, he accepted Sirius's offer to come live with him. And he went to Sirius over and over in book, um, as much as he could in books four and five. And in book five, Harry demonstrated an astronomical amount of... Um, He asked Snape, Snape, yeah, to help save Sirius. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that Sirius was insane. No. Sirius was not a mentally stable person, and not one single person in the order, including Dumbledore, did a damn thing about it. 
This is a man who spent 10 plus years in Azkaban with fucking Dementors. He got absolutely no psychological support that's that's obvious. Yeah, he was tortured for a decade. So we we have in the books is example after example after example of Harry going to the adults first and trying to get help, them usually abysmally failing him or just not being very helpful. And um, he then has to go it on his own. But he keeps trying. He does keep trying. And then there are these moments where he doesn't go get help. And the re- the rationale works right there's a belief for that is because he doesn't trust. He doesn't go to adults because he doesn't trust them because of his upbringing. And I just don't think that that holds up. But then, again, at the end of Book 7, when they're going into Hogwarts to to get the, the the last Horcrux and Voldemort is coming, what's he do? He goes to Minerva again yep. and asks for help. So... That whole thing about Hermione being a slave to authority and and Harry never asking adults for help is ridiculous. It doesn't work out for either one of them, but it's not quite true. I think the one time that you can say that Hermione bowed to authority would be when she didn't write Harry the summer after fourth year. Um, Because Dumbledore, they were out of school... Why the fuck well, you did gotta, she listen to Dumbledore? I'd have, oh, fuck you. <laughs> I'm writing my well, friend Dumbledore, a letter. <laughs> Dumbledore must have really spun her. Um, a for, load of for their, yeah, for, their, for there to be consistency in the character, Dumbledore had to have really spun her a complete load of bullshit to get her to buy into the fact that her contact with Harry was going to hurt him or could hurt him. Because it's not consistent for her character at all have just gone, oh, okay, I'll just leave my friend on his own after having one of the worst experiences of his life. I'll just leave him with no contact because that's a good idea because an adult said so. No, it, it, that's probably one of the, mo- the most character moments for her in book five, and I'll probably even discuss book six. Um, because this is a girl who actually risked her friendship with Harry because she was afraid he would get hurt with that broom. This is a girl who learned the uh, the Reparo charm specifically for glasses to fix um to fix Harry's glasses. She learned that for Harry. So that she could fix his glasses. So these are cases of where the aberration is those times when I tend to think an author ignored their character character consistency or characterization in order to make a plot point happen. And um, book five, the entirety of book five, to me, was a plot device. Um, Well, them not writing Harry is, um, I think it's it's a contrived conflict. Yeah. 
felt like book five existed to kill Sirius. And that's really fucking irritating. It really is. <laughs> okay. We want to talk about the internal narrative for Chestnut since she's not here to um, to prod us, and I don't want to forget. Um, What's the role <clears> of the internal <throat> narrative? Yeah, that was the question. Her question is, what do you think of the internal narrative of a character and how that shapes your story? Um, I personally, um, I'll answer first and you can. Is that cool? Sure. Okay. Um, I figured you might need some water. <laughs> You're sounding kind of dry over there. Um, okay. I think that for me, the internal narrative is... Um, We're talking about subjective and objective writing um, on Friday, and I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, And I do tend to be an objective writer in that I ride my narrative on the top when it comes to situations of dialogue. And I tend to go into a subjective curve um, when it comes to um, my internal narrative. And I do consider my internal narrative to be um, my foundation for my story. Because as much as I am a plotter, I do prefer that my work be character-driven, that the character um, move uh, through the plot in such a way that um, I don't like victimization. I don't like my characters to constantly be reacting to situations. Um, There has to be... Moments where they take charge and and move forward and accept this. This is what I want. This is what I'm not getting. How do I get this? Um, so my internal motivation, I, I like it to be my um, foundation. Uh, but what I've noticed sometimes is, especially when it comes to like episode work, um, and novella series that a lot of times because um, I have to move the plot in a certain way for the external, for the overall arc of the series, um, that my external motivations have a great deal of, my external events have a great deal of impact um, on my internal motivations um, that doesn't happen when I do an, a, novella, I mean, a, a novel format. And I, I don't know if it's because of the way I structure my episodes in that um, I structure them around events. Because each episode is basically one event and the reactions and um, consequences of that action. So. <clears throat> I do think I, I, I do think sometimes that, that change of the whether it's a novel, um, a novella, a short story, that it does change. Um, the level of importance in the internal narrative if you're writing a character-driven story. Because when you're writing, especially the episodes, if you could argue that some of the episodes are really more plot-driven than they are Um, Mm character-driven, even if you're a character-driven writer, um, that you're trying to move the plot forward. And and that happens happens also in a novel. If there are sections of the novel where the external plot is much more important than anything else. Um, But there's there's a flow and you will come back to the internal narrative more. Um, but in terms of the internal narrative of the character, um, because, you know, like, like here, I'm a character-driven writer, so for me the internal narrative of the character is very important. Um, and for me it has to... It has, 
It has varying levels of how important it is. Um, some stories it's less important, the internal narrative, and other stories it's more important. Um, I'm certainly always keenly aware of what their internal narrative is and what um, is driving them to do. Because if the character has no um, no goal, no motivation, no conflict going on internally, um, then then they're being dragged along by the plot. And that just feels kind of unsatisfying to me, um, since I'm a character-driven author. Uh, but some stories, so like the stories that I'm writing um, for for Nano, subversive. Um, Tony's internal narrative is the single most important part of that story. Now, not every yes. story I've written, not every story I've written has has the main character's internal narrative been the most important thing, but in subversive it is. And it is, um, everything is about, actually, the whole thing is about his internal narrative and what his plans are and his plans to basically take over everything. Um, That's why the title is actually based on his internal motivation and what he's up to. And he's probably, it's not apparent yet, although I've given hints to it, that he's probably the um, hardest-edged Tony that I've ever written. Um, He's going to, you know, leave a bloody path, you know, cut a bloody path through... um, the the world he's going into and a lot of people are going to die and he's going to order it. He's going to say, that person's going to be killed and I want you to do it right now because that is part of his narrative is he is trying to save his race of people and stop an atrocity and punish people who have done some very bad things and so his motivation is more um, central than the external plot which is actually probably one of the biggest external plots I've ever written um, and, and that kind of balances out I guess that because I'm character driven that I would have a really big external plot that I would have to that because I'm character driven would have to have a very strong character um, character uh, internal narrative to drive the plot because I'm not a plot focused author I'm very character focused so the bigger the plot the more important that the internal narrative probably likely to be in my stories and I wonder um, if that is my major problem in synthetic, in that I have this huge world, and it is my habit to write in John Shepard's point of view. And um, I think the switching back and forth um, really mess with my internal narrative. Um, Because, yes, there are scenes here and there in in, in all my work where where Rodney is is the driver. But for the most part, I do tend to write in John's point of view. So writing in Rodney's point of view um, um, is a stumbling block for me. And I keep pushing it. And um, I think that uh, that balance I tried to create in synthetic um, really mess with my internal narrative for John. Um, so, and maybe that's why my idea for flight and the the flight from Venus that I talked about on Friday night um, would have been much more emotionally satisfying to me as a writer to write. Mm. Yeah. And I do have that plotted and I am going to write it for those of you who listen to my, um, my storytelling 
20 minutes or, or ever long I, I, I took to tell that. I, I will be writing that. I, I mean, even though you know what happens, I'm still going to write it. <laughs> okay. Natasha asks. Yeah, it's, the ex- it's all in the execution. Natasha asks, how do you show that change from reactive to proactive actions from your character without just having a scene that shows the change of thinking? Well, in the thing where I did this recently, I can use this as an example. Um, Imperfect, um, Tony um, comes online unexpectedly after having been beaten up. Um, he's in a weak position as a guide because of the drugs he was given that caused him to come online. His sentinel rejects him. He's in a position where it makes logical sense, and I made little air quotes there, um, to pursue finding a sentinel as quickly as possible. He picks a sentinel, but it's all very reactive. And I don't have a, I don't have a moment where I say, I'm going to take control of my life. And it's actually done entirely from Derek's point of view, where Tony gets his um, his groove back, um, is Tony has to go in and look for, um, he's basically testing to go into another job, another line of work. And in the course of that, he sees the path he sees a he sees a cold case that makes that he understands that he sees there's a problem and he solves the cold case because he gets back into his groove and his groove is being an investigator and that that moment of taking control and being an investigator again and getting back into a role that he's comfortable in and not taking no for an answer about solving that case and driving it through to completion put him back in control and we see all that stuff happening from Derek's point of view, but Derek doesn't know the effect it's had on Tony until he sees him in person. And so you don't know that moment of transition has happened, really. You can infer it, and I hope that people infer it when they read about what he's doing. When Derek sees him, the first thing he notices is that Tony seems centered and lighter again. He seems more like himself. And that's it. That's the moment. That's the only thing that I overtly say is that Derek thinks to himself that something happened to give Tony back his sense of self. So it wasn't a moment where Tony sat and thought, I need to be back in control of my life and had that overt conversation in the narrative. It was a series of actions viewed from another character's point of view, and then another character sees him and goes, he's different. And that's just sort of... um, because I wasn't in Tony's point of view, I needed to have that moment so the reader would be along for the ride and understand um, how he got to where he was and why he was ready to go forward and push forward with the rest of his life. Because it really was, I do think Tony's a very um, very flexible, very, very adaptable person. And I don't think it would take, like, you know, weeks or months. He just needs to shift things a little bit where he feels like he's driving and he's not in the passenger seat anymore. And so I gave him those moments. I just didn't do it from his point of view. What Julie um, did in that story was she showed you, um, she showed Derek, Tony being in charge of his life is is what she did. Um, and through Derek, you see that as the as a reader, you see that um, Derek experiencing um, Tony transitioning and moving into a, 
a position of power. And this is the difference between showing and telling. Having your character sit down and think about it, that's telling. You're telling the reader what's going to happen. Um, having your character get out and do that shit, that's showing. And it was all um, these things happening and it being reported back to Derek. And Derek is, is seeing is seeing his guide um, take control of his situation um, throughout that whole period. And it's, um, um, it's very powerful because showing is always, always your better option. Natasha, have you been here for the whole podcast? Because your first, this, this, this last question you asked, I answered it in the first half of the podcast. I find Claire says that showing seems more organic. Um, I find that a lot of re- a lot of new writers are the exact opposite. Their organic their 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 natural impulse is to tell. Yeah. Okay. Natasha, earlier on I talked about um okay, you missed the first twenty minutes. If you could no, it's okay. Um if you go back and listen to it after the, um after it l- uploads, um you'll get a full on explanation of this. But what we talked about is um building your um your event plot and then writing a list of reactions from your character um to each event and then assigning goals and motivations to each of those reactions, and then braiding the three together. So that you're, not, so, so that you're not creating an external and an internal plot separately. They are, you're kind of melding them together. Oh, there's one thing in her question that I kind of want to uh, speak to we didn't quite talk about, although it was a little bit implied. Okay. She says that she creates an external plot, and then has a, com- a complicated external plot and then a complicated internal plot, and then marrying them drives them crazy. Um, that's actually something that I find, um, and it's the, it's the word complicate that I want to address because she does talk about the marrying the internal and the external at the beginning. Um, I would actually caution people about having a complicated external and a complicated internal. Um, I think one needs to be simple if you're going to have one be complicated. You've got to have a balance, and... If you have very complicated internal motivations, you're going to have to spend a lot of the narrative dealing with that, and you can't have a complicated external factors to deal with, too. Um, so that's why, like, subversive, my external plot is quite complicated. It's actually more complicated than I'm actually even comfortable with. The internal it is hugely plot, complicated. <laughs> well, the internal, the internal motivation is very simple. It is very straightforward. Um, there's nothing complicated about what Tony's trying to do. He's got a lot of steps to get there, but there's nothing complicated about his motivation. There's nothing complicated. No, about. he's driving straight forward. Boom. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> see that I've hill, got, take that hill. Exactly. So, <laughs> that, and that's that was done very deliberately because I did know the external plot was going to be very complicated. Tony's internal motivators and the internal plot had to be very straightforward and very focused to deal because he's he's why the external plot is. He's driving the external plot. So he, he has to be straightforward. And if I had his motivations be extremely complex and his goals be very complicated or very murky, then um, 
you'd wind up in a situation where I would have to slow down the external plot a lot to deal with his internal stuff. And you can, I, this is just this is just to my preference and the way I see things is when I see a complicated external and a complicated internal, I find it gets either hard to follow or the pace is blown. And you either need to have a, a complicated internal motivations and a very simplified external plot driving that you're working into, or make them medium. You just got to find a balance, and both of them being complicated is not balanced. What I would say is that you need to give yourself a place in your narrative to relax, yeah. both as a writer and also for your reader. You can't continuously ramp your reader up um, both on external and internal motivations, which is what's happening when you have a very complicated internal and external plot. You're You're driving your reader up, 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 and then... Up, 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 up. There, there's no, there's no relaxing for anybody. You're not relaxed. Your reader's not relaxed. You're, um, you need to give yourself just, just room to, to, um, to move through your narrative in an easy way, so you don't crash. And you see that a lot with unfinished works. Um, you'll notice in unfinished works, a lot of unfinished works will have really complicated internal things going on and external things going on. And then you have those, and then, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And it's continuous. And um, that kind of crash and burn is because of not giving your place, not giving yourself a place to keep it simple. Right. You have to, uh, You got to have the story has to breathe. It can't just be 90 miles an hour uphill to the climax and then fall off a cliff. Unless it's like 3,000 words, then go for it. <laughs> unless they literally do fall off a cliff. Yes, unless there's <laughs> unless it's Thelma and Louise, and then just do do the damn thing. Um, Florence. But also, but you also, know, if, you just need to. Give yourself a, a, a place to relax and calm down and also to um, um, your your pace shouldn't exhaust your reader. Or your characters. Yeah. Or yourself. <laughs> also, the more complicated, I tend to, I, te- I would tend to err on the side of simplifying your internal motivation because you want your internal motivation. A, you don't want to be, typically you don't sit down and spell out, this is my motivation. I mean, it will come out, but it's not, that's a very show versus tell kind of thing is your reader should be able to infer what the motivation is. Um, Is that when it's clear and it's crisp, it's easier to relate to the character when everything is overly complicated with the internal motivation. Um, that also means you've got to, you. If a character's got a really complicated internal motivation, um, you have to tie up all of those, and it starts to feel like the story is drifting and can drift in multiple directions. Um, I read something recently where um, the character was a little too. Um, they made the central, the internal conflict 
exist between too many characters. And then what happened as a result is all of the secondary characters in the story, in order to resolve that complicated um, motivation for the main character, wound up with a very strong um, narrative. All of them, like ten characters. And so every one of those conflicts wound up having to be exhaustively, well, not didn't have to be, but they wound up being exhaustively explored in the story. And so you you got into every single character because instead of it being about one central conflict, it was a, it was like a spider web of conflicts. And I'm tired just hearing about this. <laughs> by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, I could have, in terms of the plot, the external plot. I could have cut out all ten of those internal threads and not missed anything by the time I got to the end. That was my conclusion, is I wouldn't have missed anything. Wow. Because they were so focused on these internal conflicts, and the plot was sort of, the external plot was sort of dragged along with it, that it was like it had no, the story had no focus. It got where it was going by accident, but it had no focus because the internal motivation was so scattered. And that's something, and so I would, you know, if you're going to make, if you, if you want something complicated, I would, I would probably not recommend, if you're a new writer, and I don't know who's a new writer, is that um, keep your internal motivations more streamlined and simple. Um, work up to complicated internal motivations. It's a lot easier to deal with a complicated plot than to try to resolve and sort out um, a spider web of internal motivations. It's just, and it's not, there's nothing satisfying about reading that at all. One thing I like to do, and it's one of my favorite things to do, and especially in Stargate, is um, that uh, especially if, if I'm going to have a big external plot like what I have with ties that bind, there's lots of external things going on, um, is that I try to keep as complicated as the relationship is between John and Rodney, it's nowhere near as complicated as the external. And they're kind of in a situation where it's us against the universe, you know? And John actually says it in No Enemy Within. He tells Cameron Mitchell, because at the end of the day, he has Rodney at his side giving the universe the bird. <laughs> and that makes everything else okay. <laughs> so, you know, I think that um, if you are a, a writer who is um, having a problem with um, that kind of issue, uh that you might want to start with giving yourself a really, really simple internal um, uh, structure. Um, and don't have your character, like, always reacting. You'll have them be a little proactive, and there's reactions and proactions. And just try to move them through your plot uh, and keep their relationships uh, that are not externally uh, impacted on um, simple. If they have a love interest, don't fall into that trap of having their love interest um, go off the rails uh, or um, just try to insert drama where they're 
really doesn't need to be. Because if you have a lot of external drama, there's no need for um, internal. You've got plenty of drama to work with. You don't need to add a cheating thing or a jealousy thing or um, a... um, those things are contrived in, in some situations. And if you're going to write a story about somebody cheating or somebody being jealous, that is a central issue. Yeah. And you can't use it to manufacture drama. Well, you can. It's just bad craft. <laughs> and you need a main character. You need a main character. Please, please, um, please have a fucking main character. <laughs> You can have a main pairing, and that's two people, but you need to know whose story you're telling. You're not riding on um, in the restless. <laughs> yes, that is, and that is something. And, and there was actually, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Somebody actually asked that question about not having a main character, and it was discussed on the forum. Um, it was a good question about do you even need a main character? Yes, yes, you do. You need a main character. You need to know whose story you're telling whose internal conflict matters. Because every character is going to have some level of internal conflict or internal motivation. And you need to be aware, at least be aware as the writer of what they are. All your characters have to have a reason to be where they are in the story. But you're telling one person's. One person's is what's driving the story. One. It can't be an ensemble cast driving towards... um, It's like, you know, it's like, Ten people trying to drive the car. It doesn't work. Well, it's because it destroys your internal narrative, and it also damages your pace. Um, and it creates a situation where your reader um, doesn't relate to any one character. And your main character is your your reader's window into the world you're building. And if you've got your reader darting around a house looking in ten different windows, you've got a problem. Right. And that's not the same thing as point of view. Don't confuse point of view with who who your internal narrator is. Um, but when you change points of view, your point of view of the new person, so like in Subversive, Tony's my internal narrator. He's the narrator of the story. But when I switch into Steve's point of view, it's all about Tony. It's looking at Tony's, what Tony's doing, his drive, the path he's taking from Steve's point of view. Now, I do introduce some stuff about Steve because he's a central character. He's not the main character, but he's a central character. But it's about viewing the lens of that internal motivator from a, just from another character's perspective, not introducing um, another central character um, internal motivator for the story. But like I said, every character has motivators, and they're going to come up. But the motivator, you need to have one that you're driving, that's driving the plot. And that should be your central character. And if you don't, if you if you aren't sure who your central character is, you're not ready to write your story because you don't know what story you're going to be telling. Because a story, if I had told Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond almost entirely from Hermione's point of view, it would be an entirely different story. The events would still happen, but the internal narrative would be vastly different. 
if you think about um, one exercise you could do, and I do, please don't do this in your fic. It drives me crazy. It's like my it's like my third biggest pet peeve outside of formatting and dialogue tags um, or miss uh, fucked up dialogue mechanics. Um, as an exercise, and as an exercise only, write a scene from one character's point of view, then turn around and write it in another. Because it will show you um, the scene from a different perspective, and it will give you um, uh, a view of your process. It's... I hate it when... And I, I, you know, I've probably done it too, and I hate it, and I don't know why I did it, but I hate it when I read a scene, and then there's like a star, 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 and then there's, it's the same fucking scene written from somebody else's point of view in a story. I'm talking to you, fanfiction.net writers. It's terrible. (laughs) Don't do it. I I don't need to see. Yeah, Lady Holder's done it. I've done it. I'm I'm not going to lie and say I haven't, but I hate it. I don't think I've ever done that. I I, I don't I, I can't say for absolute certainty because there's a lot of stuff I don't remember that I've written, but I don't think I've oh, ever done that. I know that. I did it. I know I did it when I was younger. I know I did. Oh, so. when I was younger, yes, definitely. But um, I haven't done that. Um, I don't. And you know what I blame? Section. You know what I blame? I used to get these little books, and it would be his and her stories, and one side would be the girl story, and then you flip the fucker over, and it would be the boy story on the other side. And it would be the same damn story written from his point of view. I had a whole bunch of those books. Yeah, it's just, and the thing is, I have read. There was one story where that worked for me. One fan fiction story I've read my entire life, where the entire story was written from one character's point of view, and then she rewrote the whole story from the other character's point of view. And it worked in that one instance and one out of the millions and millions and millions and millions of words of fan fiction I've read where I thought that that was really good that we got both. Um, that that, that 15,000 words repeated is the only example I can come up with. Um, it's just, you know, don't... That, but definitely, I mean, sometimes... Sometimes I don't do it deliberately, set out to write the same scene from both characters' points of view. But what happens is I get into a scene, and I thought I knew whose point of view it was in, and it ain't working. And I change, rewrite the scene in another character's point of view, and it works. And sometimes I don't, I think I know what point of view, I just, this is actually one of the things I struggle with. Bizarrely, as I think I shouldn't, is I'll launch into a scene and get halfway through it and go, I'm in the wrong point of view. And what happens is, is that I'm getting, usually it's because it's gotten boring, or I'm focused on the wrong details, and that's because of the point of view I'm in. Um, especially when things get really pedantic, that tells me that I'm in the wrong point of view. Um, because certain characters are going to focus on things differently. So, um, so for instance... I don't, I don't understand the question. What if one POV is internally other external POV with two different characters? You mean like do one person in first person and another person in third person or something?
Or do you mean like my central character in an outsider point of view? Okay. Um, but do you mean tell the same? Do you mean tell the same scene from those different points of view? Because I, I still, I still wouldn't do it. But one way you can do it, and I did do it in ties that bond in a very um, vague kind of way. There is um, a scene in the first. In the, in the episode where John and Rodney are, are, are going to Canada, um, Jack O'Neill has a, an opinion about Caleb Miller that was shaped based on um, what he heard from Carter and what he saw. He was led to believe that Caleb Miller was a very old-fashioned dom. And that the scene that happened um, in front of him was an example of that. When John gets to Canada, what Jack thought he saw wasn't what he saw at all. It was an argument between Caleb and Carter where he told Carter that she needed to have training. Is that what you mean? That's not what you mean. We're down to one minute. I'll tell you what, Barbara. Go over to Ask Me Anything and hammer this all out for me in a little comment question and we'll answer it later in the week. Okay? Because this is probably going to require a lot more than the minute we've got left. (laughs) Okay. Um, I hope that I've answered your question, Chestnut. Nola, um, if I haven't and you have more, just trot over to the page and respond to your original question with more questions. Um, I think we did. I I, I think we covered all of it. Um, For those of you who came in late, you might want to start over, and it'll take about 30 minutes or 20 or so minutes for the show to show back up, and then you can listen to the part that you missed. And if you have questions, you can go over to um, Ask Me Anything and ask them. Her question was the last one I approved on that page, so it's right down there at the bottom. You guys have a great evening. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>